From the uh, things aren't always as they uh, may appear category comes the following story. The story is told of two little boys who are in a hospital. They're lying on hospital beds in the same room next to one another. The first kid leans over and he says, hey, uh, what are you in here for? Second kid says, well, I'm here to get my tonsils out. And to be honest with you, I'm a little nervous. First kid said, oh, you know what? You don't have anything to worry about. I had that done when I was four. Says they, they put you to sleep. When you wake up, they give you lots of jello and ice cream, and it, there's nothing to it. So he looks at him and says, Well, what are you in here for? And the first kid says, Well, I, I'm here to have a circumcision. Second kid says, Whoa, good luck, buddy. I had that done when I was born, couldn't walk for a year. <laughs> you know, there are, there are times in life when we think we get it, but we just don't. And uh, that's certainly true of many who think they know what the church is all about, but according to God's Word, they just don't get it. As a reminder, we are in the midst of a series of messages that have focused our attention on what God has to say regarding His church. And uh, to date, we've learned, according to Acts chapter 2, that uh, the church, as an ideal church, what constitutes an ideal church is a church that's unified. A church whose members have all come to faith in Jesus Christ. By grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us could ever boast. That we're added to the membership only after we've come to the cross for forgiveness of sins. That the ideal church is a church that focuses on the Scriptures and an agreement as far as the authority and the infallibility and the inspiration of the Word of God, that it is truly God-breathed and inspired. The ideal church is focused on sharing and meeting the needs of one another and meeting the needs of those that God brings into our presence so that we would have a platform to earn the right to be heard so that we can tell them about our Savior. The ideal church regularly remembers the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made upon the cross for the sins of the world, sufficient for all, but efficient only for those who come to Him by faith. And finally, we're a, the ideal church is a, is a church that as we look at this and as we get together is a church that prays, that bring, brings up supplications before God with thanksgiving. Letting our requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding we're told will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. The ideal church is unified in those essentials, but also the ideal church is magnified before the world. A church that does those things, will be, there will be a spotlight on a church such as that. So that the world around us will recognize there's something different about us. So that they will be attracted. We are light and we are salt according to Jesus. We're, we're, we're light and salt to make a difference in the world. So that we can defer all the glory and the attention to our Savior. You know, the ideal church will also be a church that's multiplied. Not because it's a, it's a priority. Not because it's even a goal. But God will add to the numbers as He sees fit. Because the privilege of ministry is growth. It's never the goal. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that goal is here in a second. But the ideal church is unified, is magnified, and multiplied. We learned last time that the primary purpose of the church... And thereby all believers is to bring glory to our God. And we do so in one way by exalting the name of Jesus Christ before the world. We bring glory to God. We're told that God God is pleased when we exalt Jesus Christ to the world around us. You know, it's interesting as we went through it, the question was asking that, you know what, what's so special about Jesus? Linda and I were having lunch the other day with a gentleman that came over and talked to us and heard about the church and he said, basically, he said, you know, I, I, I'm, you know me, I'm not big into church and things like that. And he says, but if there's anybody that I'll come and listen to, I'll come and listen to you. And so we invited him, and yet he, he started to say, now, you're not one of those guys that are just going to beat Jesus over my head, are you? And uh, I guess it all depends on, on how he would interpret that. But the reality of it is, is that, you know, we're here to preach the full counsel of God, but you can't help but exalting Jesus Christ because there's nobody like him. There is nobody else that ever walked the face of the earth like Jesus. He's holy God and fully man. And the Bible tells us that he's been given a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God, that he's preeminent above all. We also recognize that he is all-powerful. You know, as the disciples were out in the midst of the boat, in the midst of the storm, they looked up as Jesus told the winds and the rain to stop, and they said, what kind of man is this? 
that even the winds and the rain listen to what he has to say. And the reality is that there's been no man ever walked the face of the earth like Jesus. Fully God and fully man. He's been given a name above every name. He has all power that he's in control of all things. And his pre-existence indicates that before anything came into being that he already existed and he created all things. John 1 and Genesis 1. Jesus said before Abraham existed, I am. Why should we exalt Jesus? Because of his special place and authority over the church. It's his church. And he should be exalted. His providence holds the universe together and sustains it. When you and I went to sleep last, last night, the reason that we could get together here today is because while we were sleeping, our Lord held the universe together. You know, it's so predictable, and yet we take it for, for, we take it for granted. You know, it's amazing when you watch TV and you hear a weatherman say the sun will rise, which obviously, it, it, you know, it's there, but for us it rises at a certain time. And it's predictable. We know exactly the time and we know exactly when it'll set. And God has set everything in order so that we would see that there is a creator, a designer, one who holds it all together. Things that we take for granted on a regular basis, God is shouting. The Bible says the heavens declare the handiwork of God. You know, his creation shouts out his existence. It's just a question of whether we want to pay attention or not. So as we look at these things, knowing that the primary purpose of the church is to glorify God, we come today to yet another question. And I told you last time, I love asking questions. You know, why are we here? Uh, What are we supposed to do? What's the purpose of things? You know, and, and the question that I had this week as I was studying is, what is the primary or the proper priority of the church? See, we know the primary purpose is to bring glory to God, but what then should come next? What is the the proper priority? Several years ago, I came across an article by a gentleman by the name of Charles Hummel, and he entitled it The Tyranny of the Urgent. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's a thought-provoking piece of writing. Uh, Its message is uncomplicated and direct, and it packs a warning to us all. As he looked back on yet another year's worth of activity, he concluded the following. He said this, I have left undone those things which I, have, which I ought to have done. And I have done those things which I ought not to have done. Several years ago, an experienced cotton mill manager said to me, Your greatest danger is letting the urgent things crowd out the important. So he didn't realize how hard this max, his maxim hit. It often returns to haunt and rebuke me by raising the critical problem of priorities. He said, we live in a constant tension between that which is urgent and that which is important. The problem is that the important task rarely must be done today or even this week. Extra hours of prayer and Bible study, a visit with a non-believing friend, careful study of an important book, these projects can always wait. But the urgent tasks call for instant action. Endless demands pressure every hour and day. And without realizing it, we become slaves to the urgent. What is the proper priority of the church whose primary purpose is to glorify God? I believe it is to encourage the spiritual growth of its members. If you recall from Acts 2, the church is comprised of believers, those who have received God's truth and acted accordingly. Recognizing our sinfulness, we've come to God and we've thrown ourselves upon His mercy at the cross. Recognizing our sinfulness, therefore we recognize a need for a Savior. And as we've come to Christ, we've asked for forgiveness. And we've responded by faith through grace, by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ on the cross. Believing that He died for me, believing that He rose again from the dead. And believing God's invitation that all who come to Him will be forgiven, made a child of God to those who believe in His name. See, the church is comprised of believers, the Bible says, who are babies in Christ. Anyone who receives Jesus Christ as Savior enters the kingdom of God as a child of God to those who believe in His name. And the goal of God, which is the goal of His church, which should be the goal of each of us as members of His body, is to encourage the spiritual growth of one another. And the reality of it is simply... Dead things can't grow. Dead things can't grow. 
And it's redundant to think that we can add to membership those who have never been born again from above by the will of God. Dead things can't grow. Before I came to the cross and trusted in Christ as my Savior, there was no hope for me to grow spiritually in my life because I was dead spiritually. I was dead to God, but I was alive to sin. And the Bible says the only way that you and I can grow spiritually is that we must be alive. We must be born again. It's critical because you can't see the kingdom of God unless one is born again. Jesus clearly said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But if one is born again, then we are alive spiritually and we therefore can grow. Dead things can't grow. Story to illustrate it. Little Timmy was in his garden filling in a hole when his neighbor looked over the fence and asked him what he was doing. He politely said, Timmy, what are you doing there? And Timmy, tearfully, not even looking up at him, said, My goldfish died, and I've just buried him. The neighbor was concerned and said, But boy, Timmy, that's an awfully big hole for a goldfish, isn't it? Timmy, still not looking up, patting down the last heap of dirt, replied, That's because he's inside your stupid cat. Timmy planting a cat, but it's not going to grow. This is not going to grow. See, God's goal is to grow us from children of God to mature, complete individuals, adults, reproducing adults who become more like Jesus every day. If you've got your Bibles, hopefully turn to Ephesians chapter 4. For those of you who may be in need of a Bible, We've got a table at the back. Our ushers are looking. Anybody that needs one, just raise your hand. We've got Bibles that are free, uh, that are ours uh, as a gift to you. And uh, and it's important because each week that we get together, we will study the Word of God. That's why we're here, to be instructed in the Word of God. And so if you need one, we certainly don't want to embarrass anybody, but they're available, and certainly you're welcome to it as a gift. In Ephesians chapter chapter 4, we read these words that help us to understand the proper priority of the church. Ephesians 4, starting with verse 11, it says, And God gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And the whole purpose is for the encouraging of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, To a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are able to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. What a very clear understanding of the proper priority of the church is to encourage one another to grow up in our faith. Notice that the whole purpose of why God has given the church gifted men is for the purpose of using those gifts so that we will equip the body of Christ for works of service. My responsibility as a pastor-teacher is to teach the Word of God in such a way that it equips you and also even myself for the work of service that God has prepared for us to do before the foundation of the earth. Ephesians 2, verse 10. See, it's the purpose is to build up the body of Christ. Not to destroy one another, not to tear each other down, not to to rip into each other and, and constantly be a source of a negative experience. The purpose of the church is to build one another up. To, to be patient, and as we'll see with the Apostle Paul as he visited the Thessalonians, as he encouraged them, as he built them up, we'll see some things that were true of his life that need to be true of ours. But the whole purpose is so that we will grow. And as we grow, there's unity because we understand the truths of God. The essentials of God, we rally around those truths. As I've always said, and I'll continue to say, you know, in, these, in those essential things, there must be unity and non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, there must be charity or love. And as we look at this, as we grow and are mature, 
as we're perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. We won't be tossed here and there by waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You know, we live in a world that's constantly at enmity with God. And there's philosophies in our world that would have us to be drifting away from what God says is truth. The anchor of the Word of God is truth in a day and age where every philosophy that comes around, we're being told is equal to any other. But it's not. Because God's Word is truth. Jesus said that He is the way, the truth, and the life. That no man comes unto the Father but through Him. Pilate asked him the question, what is truth? Frustrated with the fact that, you know, there's all different ideas of what is truth. Thy word is truth, Jesus said in John 17. The word of God is our truth. The word of God is our anchor. The word of God is what holds us from being tossed to and from by people who would whisper things to us that are not true. Thy word is truth. And in 1 Thessalonians, the passage that we'll focus our time on today, the Apostle Paul shares four priorities for living that will stimulate spiritual growth and free us from the tyranny of the urgent. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to examine verses 1 through 13 and take a look at four essentials or four priorities for living that will stimulate growth not only in our own lives, but also in the lives of those who come in contact with us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting with verse 1, we read these words. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation doesn't come from error or impurity or by the way of deceit. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children having thus a fond affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And for this reason also, we constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it truly is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. You know, if you'll notice in verse 1, Paul emphatically says to them, he says he reminds his readers of his actions. And among them, uh, he, he says, basically, not only my actions, but my motives. And he says, you. And you is emphatic, meaning that, you know, you need to carefully recall the things that we've done that while we were in your presence. I want you to remember our relationship together. It's important to be able to, as, as you'll see, as Paul begins to address certain allegations that are made, he does so briefly, but it's important that he says to them, listen, you know what, we have a history together. And you need to remember what that history is because when the lies come up and the deception comes up and the allegations come up and, and none of them have any basis or merit of truth, but you need to remember clearly what took place in your midst. Because what I've seen in my lifetime is, you know, we can see something. We can witness something. We can be there and know something happened. But you know what? If you hear from enough people that told you you weren't even there before you know it, you're starting to doubt whether you were there. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I, I got the, I've got a picture of me in a locker room in the World Series with all the guys that went to chapel. And, and you know, and as, as, as the time has gone on, it's become kind of a distant memory. And leaving tonight to go to spring training for a couple of days. And, you know, and it's like that was then and this is now. And you, you start to, you know, you start to doubt whether that even happened. 
And there are times where you need to go back to remember. And I've always said that, you know what, we need to be more careful to remember the things that God wants us to remember and forget the things He tells us to forget. But there is a place to remember things. You know, to remember where God brought you from, to where you are today, to where He's going to take you. You know, forgetting offenses done against us. You know, I've always, I like the saying where it says, you know, the the offenses done against us, write them in, in, in dust. But the benefits done for us, chisel them in marble. Don't ever forget. The things that people do to hurt us, you know what, just write them in dust and then just dust it off and let it go. But the things that people do for us, including our God, chisel them in marble and never forget. See, he's saying to them, don't forget our relationship. In this passage, we see the heart of a pastor, a genuine shepherd. Our English word pastor comes from the Latin word, which means to, to shepherd. To shepherd, the, the emphasis here is that you know, he, he has these four priorities that led to the spiritual growth. Thinking back, they would recall that Paul's visit, notice what he says. He says, for you yourselves know by experience, because you were there, you know that our time together wasn't in vain. The word vanity in Hebrew, is, as some of you may recall immediately, is where Solomon says, you know, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. You know, we're all ch- chasing soap bubbles. There's so many things in the world. And you know what those things are? The urgent things. The urgent things in the world we chase with a full, full-hearted passion. And as we get those things, God says, but they don't have any eternal value. It's the important things that we don't make time for that have eternal significance. And he's saying that, you know what, you know our coming to you wasn't in vain. And you know how we can tell that that, that his coming wasn't in vain? Lives were changed. Lives were changed. He saw progress. As you look around and you go, look at the progress that God is making in the lives of people. Not numeric, you know, not the numeric growth that we get so hung up on the world that we live in. But spiritual growth and spiritual significance where you can say, man, you know what? That he who began a good work in you is continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We can see that you aren't anything close to what you used to be. And you know what? And it's encouraging to be able to see growth in our life to encourage us that we're heading in the right direction in our walk with the Lord. Change lives. You know, if your life is not changed by being here, if there's no growth as a result of hearing God's truth, I challenge you as the Word of God tells us to, to examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. Because if you're exposed to God's truth and you're not growing, it may be because you're still dead in your sins and you need to come to the cross for forgiveness. If you're not growing and you've come to the cross and you know that you're a child of God born again and you're not growing being exposed to the Word of God, it's because then you're disobedient to what God is calling you and requiring of you. If we don't grow, it's simply because either we're dead or disobedient. If you don't grow, if we don't grow as a church, if we don't grow as a congregation, then it's my fault because I'm not teaching the Word of God and equipping you for the work that God has prepared for you to do. If I am not bringing the Word of God, then I am culpable before God for the lack of spiritual growth. But if I am faithful to God's calling in my life and I bring to you consistently the truths of God, then it's no longer my responsibility before God. It becomes yours. I can stand before the Lord and say, God, I did what you called me and gifted me to do. How you respond is between you and God. And we all have that accountability. So as we look at this, what were the four priorities for living that Paul shared with uh, that resulted in spiritual growth? Uh, the first thing is, and if you want to take notes in, in the bulletin, you've got a place to do that. The first thing is this. But Paul reminded them and us that in order to grow spiritually, we must be biblical in our thoughts, words, and deeds. That we must be biblical. He says, you know that our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't a waste of time. That after we had already been suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, which wasn't very far away, about 50 miles away from Thessalonia. As you know, we had the boldness of our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. In verse 4, he says, But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. 
As Paul looked over the weeks that they spent together, he reminded them of several truths. And I'm confident that he was bombarded with a ton of urgent things that needed to be taken care of. But he had a single focus on his mind, and that is this. He knew his purpose was to deliver to them the truth of God's Word. He was biblical in all of his thoughts. He never got sidetracked or distracted by what he was there to do. You know, so oftentimes in life, it's easy to get sidetracked, you know, and you forget even why you're there. You know, during the World Series, it was easy to walk into the clubhouse and see all this activity and see all these things going on and, and be a part of all that and go, man, there's a lot of stuff going on here. And, and, and yet, at the same time, to never forget the purpose that I was there was to be a messenger of God and deliver God's truth. Not to get caught up in all the hype like so many other people did. But to be able to be focused in the midst of all of that confusion and turmoil and chaos and celebration and everything that went with it, never to forget that I was an ambassador for Jesus Christ in an environment that He had opened the door for me to go to for the purpose of, of telling about God and His truth. It's easy to get sidetracked. And yet in Acts chapter 6, you know, a pastor has to guard his time from being sidetracked from the tyranny of the urgent because his calling is to preach the word of God in season and out. Always being ready to, you know, to be able to teach truth. See, Paul and Silas had been beaten. They'd been humiliated at Philippi because they had shared the scriptures with those who would listen. And as those who came to faith in Christ uh, were, began to grow and their lives were changed, man, it turned their world upside down. And so it's kind of like the philosophy, it's like, man, if, you know, if I'm teaching truth, the whole reason I'm being beaten and persecuted is because I'm telling people about Jesus Christ, I'm telling them of their need for forgiveness, I'm telling them of their sin, and God wants me to teach the full counsel of God. If the whole reason I'm getting beat up is because I am a messenger of God, and people hate the message, but instead of the message, they usually beat up the messenger... It's not hard to see how he can conceivably have thought, hey, you know what? If I stop doing this, all the pain in my life will go away. But so would the joy of being obedient to his Savior. See, I've often said that, you know, one of the greatest blessings of ministry is being involved in the lives of people and watch what God does through his truth and the power of the Spirit of God in touching hearts and changing lives. And at the same time, one of the worst things about being in ministry is being involved in the lives of people. So it's kind of like, you know, it, it's a real turmoil there, you know, it's got both, you know, and so what he's thinking is that, man, you know, it's like, it's like a football player, you know, he's running down the field with the football and, you know, and everybody's trying to get him and knock him down and punch the ball out of his arms and, you know, just pound him, you know, and after a while you think, man, if I don't have this ball, everyone leave me alone, watch this, and they throw it over there and... But he goes that way, you know, it's great. It's kind of like, I think at times as believers, we think, you know what? If we could just throw the word of God over to the side and just tell people what they want to hear, then guess what? They'll like us. But, but that doesn't matter. Because this isn't about being popular with men. It's about being right before God. See, when you and I stand before, as, as believers, when you and I stand before the Bema seat or judgment seat of Jesus Christ, Guess what? It won't matter how many people come to testify how nice we were. Because we have a God who examines our hearts and He knows all truth. We will be calling no witnesses to support our position. We will stand before Him one-on-one and He will have examined our hearts and knew our motives and why we did what we did and why we didn't do what He called us and gifted us, equipped us and enabled us to do. See, they were biblical. The truth is, you know, we live in a world where people say they want to know the truth. No, they don't. They don't. Some people are seeking truth, praise God, and you know what? And God will use us in their life to expose them to truth for the purpose of accepting it for what it is. The Word of God, the truth of God. But don't ever get deceived that the world we live in is seeking truth. Because, you know what? When they hear the truth, most people can't handle the truth. Because they don't want to know the truth. You know, as that great theologian Jack Nicholson once said, <laughs> you can't handle the truth. You know, and, and, and that is the truth. 
So as we look at this, you know, if, and notice what he says. For you yourselves know, brethren, our coming to you was not in vain, but we have already suffered and been mistreated. As you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. The word much opposition is a contest or a struggle. The Greek world as ours was familiar with athletic contests. And as Paul often would use these, spirit, these illustrations to Ill- illustrate spirit, spiritual truth. 1 Corinthians 9, man, and we're in a battle. You know, Ephesians 6, it's warfare. You know, don't ever forget that sharing God's truth with other people is going to cause a reaction on the part of those who are living in darkness. Jesus said they hated the light because when the light was shown on their activities, it exposed them for what they were, wrong before God. They hated the light because their deeds were evil and they loved the cover of darkness. We are so naive to think if we share truth with people, they're going to go, whoa, thank you. Well, thank you. That's good to know fornication is still a sin. Thanks for pointing that out. All sex outside of marriage, oh, still a sin. Thank you for pointing out adultery is still a sin. Thank you for pointing out that lying is still a sin. Because, you know, I thought it was just miscommunication. You know, thank you for pointing these things out to us. Because, you know, we really want to know what the truth is. And I haven't had too many of those conversations lately. Thank you for knowing that that's sin in my life because, you know what, I've made my business my God. I've made money my God. And Jesus said, you can't love both God and money. You'll hate one and love the other. You'll despise one because they're in opposition against each other. Because God is an owner of all things and He gives us resources so that we have to be accountable as to how we use them for His purposes and what? For His glory. Thanks for pointing that out to me. You know, praise God when people say that. You know, that's just, I'm just telling you right now, that's just a bonus. If that happens, enjoy it. Because the next person God brings into your life who you share these truths with may not be as receptive. But yet at the same time, the Word of God has been entrusted to us. Notice that. It's a great treasure. Verse 4, entrust means to, to give to somebody for safekeeping this tremendous treasure that has given to us. You know, this may sound obvious, but we must develop as believers a biblical mindset if we're to accomplish the important and not give in to the urgent. God, is what I'm about to do what you want me to do or what I want to do? Are the goals that I set goals that bring glory to you or just to myself? Are the goals that I have, the things that I want to do, the relationships that I'm in, the business I want to pursue or the job or whatever it is, are those pleasing to you? We need to develop a biblical mindset. Man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his paths. Bottom line is this. He always has final say in anything he'll have us do. You know, God promises godly success to those who meditate on the word of God, careful to do according to all that is written in it. The psalmist tells us, Thy thy word, O God, I've hidden my heart, and the purpose I've hidden in my heart is so that I don't sin against you. You know, Jesus said that, you know, it's out of, it's, it's not, you know, a food that, that, that man needs. It's every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We sing hymns and songs and choruses that talk about the word of God being everything to us. The very breath that we have, that we breathe is the word of God. Not only just his presence, but the word of God living within us. That the word of God, in Hebrews chapter 4, turn ahead with me a couple of books to Hebrews chapter 4 and see what the writer of the Hebrews tells him about the living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, word of God. In Hebrews 4, verses 12 through 13, we read these words, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, the principles and precepts of Scripture touch what no surgeon's scalpel can ever touch. And that's the soul and the spirit. Our thoughts and our attitudes. God uses truth to help shape us and clean us up and to mature us in our walk with Him. The goal of every church, the goal of every believer, according to Hebrews chapter 5, is this. Look at verse 11. Paul writes, the writer of Hebrews writes, Concerning Him we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. 
For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Isn't that great? The goal of every one of us should be to move from milk to meat. And once you get the meat, don't go back to milk. Let's all develop a theme as a church. We're all lactose intolerant. Isn't that great? I mean, let's just, let's just say, look, you know what? We're going to go to meat. You know, let's stop just keeping this down here nice and low and be comfortable with that. He's saying, you know what? I had so much more to teach you. I had so much truth I wanted to share with you, but you just weren't ready. And the reason you weren't ready is because what you had already learned, you hadn't begun to put into practice. What God had already been convicting you to do, you were disobedient and you didn't do it. And every time we're disobedient, we become callous to the, to the voice of God in our life. And before we know it, we can't even hear it. It's just a distant murmur. Obedience. When we walk in obedience, we clearly hear, see, we clearly hear and see God leading us. He's saying, man, we should go from milk to meat. Milk to meat. None of us should ever be content with anything less. As newborn babes, we long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it we grow in respect to salvation. But as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our obedience, as we follow God's leading in our life, we should be moving away from milk and moving to meat. Can you imagine how discouraging it would be for any parent to have an eight or nine-year-old child who still wants to suck on a bottle? How sad would that be? Hey, it's time to grow up. Throw the bottle aside. Let's go. Let's get into Cheerios. We'll do that and then we'll move on from there. Pretty soon you're getting PCH chili dogs up on Chapman Avenue. Man, it's good stuff. You know, it doesn't get any better than that. See, he deals with every air in our life. So we need to take it to heart. We need to go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now that you're all thinking about lunch and, and uh, pick, up, pick up on the next one. It's like, no wonder he looks like that. Chili dogs, man, I got to pray for that, brother. So first and foremost, we need to become people who are thoroughly committed to biblical thinking and actions in spite of all the opposition that we have in the world that we live. Let's never lose sight of the fact that we've been called out of this world to live lives pleasing to God that will bring Him all the glory by putting into practice the things that we learn from the Word of God. Number two... He says in verse 3 through 6, Paul going back to the Thessalonians says to them, For our exhortation doesn't come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as you have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. The second point that he's saying is this. You know what? Not only must we be biblical, but we also must be believable. We need to be believable before the world. I love this passage because what we learn from Paul is that he was the real deal. He was so secure in who he was in Christ. He was so secure in recognizing and understanding that on the road to Damascus, he came to know Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, as his personal Lord. He was so secure that he recognized that he who began a good work in him would continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He was so secure in what was going on that he knew that, you know what, that God was at work, at work in his life, conforming him into the image of his Son. And that he was able to peel off all the mask and say, this is who I am. Thank God I'm not who I used to be. This is who I am at this moment in time. And praise God that he who began a good work in me isn't complete yet because he is still working on me as well. But you know what? But I can be real with you. I can be genuine with you. I can, I can, I can take off all the masks and all the cover-ups and stand vulnerable before you. He was sincere and in him there was no wax. He was like Nathaniel who Jesus said, you know what, in him there is no guile. What you see is what you get. You know, he didn't play a game. He was transparent. And you know what? I want to challenge us to consider that transparent Christians help others grow. And you know why? Because when we can all see progress, when we can all see milk to meat from a child to a mature believer who's lacking in nothing, then you know what? It gives us hope that we too can grow in our walk with our Savior. When we can see progress... Man, you know what? It, gives us, it makes us excited to continue the journey. When we can see that, 
look around and as we see spiritual growth, man, it's so exciting to me. As I look out and see, because I've been involved in the lives of many of you in a very intimate, personal way, and when I see what God has done in your life, from where He has brought you to where you are today and even looking ahead to what He's going to do in the future, man, you know what? It gives me hope as well that He's not done with me either. It's so awesome to be believable. Notice Paul, if you go back and notice, Paul, Paul clarifies his motives and his words were in tune with his actions. In verse 3, he says, you know, he denies three allegations. And you know what's interesting is that, you know, people accuse Paul of things all the time. And what I like about accusations in this case, Paul just, he just answers them quickly and moves on from there. Doesn't dwell on them, doesn't try to make a case for himself. Basically what he says is they, they, they accused him of three things. Number one, he says that his message was not error or deceptive. It was truth. There are people running around saying, hey, what that guy's preaching is not truth. He said, well, here's my answer for that. Yes, it is. Number two, they said that he had impure motives. And he said, no, my motives were pure before God. Number three, the allegation was that his method was to deceive people. And he says, no, no, it wasn't. And he moves on. And the reason that he says it very clearly is this. Look, you know what? None of those things are true. And the reason they're not true is because there's one thing that I've never forgotten in my life and I hope to never forget. And that's this. God sees everything. Not only does he see our external actions, but he knows our heart and he knows our motives. He knows behind, what's behind everything that we do. And he said, I can stand with a clear conscience before God and tell you this, that God sees my heart. He knows the accusations aren't true. The allegations aren't true. I'm not going to spend a lot of time dealing with them. I'm just going to answer them one at a time. You say what I'm teaching is not truth. It is truth. You say I've got impure motives. Hey, you know what? No, I don't. And, you know, and he just went on and then he moves on from there. And he says, hey, Paul preached God's truth like a man not worried about being invited back. Isn't that great? He preached God's truth like a man wasn't worried about being invited back. About a month ago, several years ago, a number of years now, Linda and I met a couple who was at a conference that we were at in Tampa, Florida. It was a conference for professional athletes. The gentleman's name is John the Bull Bramlett. He used to be a professional football player, came to know Christ as a Savior, and now he's a full-time evangelist. Just goes around telling everybody and anybody will invite him, then he'll listen, preaches the truth of God, and just shares the gospel of Jesus Christ. John the Bull Bramlett. Talked to him about a month ago, see how he was doing. Good old boy from Alabama. He said, well, Chuck, you know, it's kind of interesting walking with Jesus. I said, I know, bull, what's up? He goes, well, I'll tell you, let me tell you something. He goes, about a year ago, some good old boys invited me to come and do a chapel for the fellows at NASCAR. He said, and as I was preaching the word of God, I came to a passage and I was convicted about this passage. And said, basically, fellows, you know what? What fellowship does darkness have with light? And I began to challenge him to think about the fact that NASCAR's two biggest sponsors are, are booze, and alcohol, uh, booze and tobacco. I said, and fellas, I think it's hypocritical. I don't think we're very believable in a world where we'll sell out because of sponsors' money. So I just told it the way it was. I thought that's the message God wanted to share and it's pretty, pretty clear to me in the Word of God. Said so about a year went by, and I didn't hear from that fellow again who invited me. And I called him and said, hey, I know that, you know, we're about ready to kick off. Uh, you know, you're going to have me come. And he goes, you know, John, I don't think we'll be having you come this year. He said, why is that? He said, well, because, John, you offended our biggest sponsors. He said, you know what? He goes, I just trust God to invite me to speak somewhere else. Because I'm not going to compromise the Word of God to be popular with people. There's something we've got to look at in our life. Because if our faith doesn't cost us something, then it's not discipleship. Because Jesus said, pick up your cross daily, denying yourself, and come and follow me. That man can't love money and God because one will be in opposition to the other. We live in a world where so many people are selling out. Because, you know what, they're more concerned about their job, they're more concerned about their money, they're more concerned about their position in life than being obedient before their Savior. The point is very simple. We can't deceive, we can't mislead, we can't manipulate anyone into a relationship with God. I was invited to speak at a Long Beach prayer breakfast, uh, Good Friday. 
And the gal who called me from the YMCA started to share some things with me about, you know, whether you know this is a, one of those, you know, interdenominational type of deals and blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, you know, it's Good Friday and, uh, you know, I'm coming to talk about Jesus. And she kind of went, well, that's okay. I said, then good, I'll be there. I just want to make sure it's okay because, you know, if you don't want me to talk about Jesus and you want me to talk about some arbitrary God, then I'm not coming. I said, no, you can come. It's always good, too, when they already have the, like, things printed up and they're already advertising it. And, you know, it's beautiful, you know, but I just want to make sure it's okay with everybody. You know, I talk about Jesus because, you know, it's Good Friday and you know what? And that's a great day in my life because if Jesus doesn't go to the cross and die for my sins, then you know what? I'm still dead to God and I'm still alive in my sin. But hey, you know what? Because the cross, the cross led to the grave and the grave led to resurrection. And you and I are born again alive today who have trusted in Christ because of what he accomplished on the cross and in that tomb. So you know what? Let's go around telling people about Jesus. It's okay. Because that's what he's commissioned us to do anyway. So it's not even okay. It's kind of like mandatory. It's kind of expected. So as we go through it, we need to recognize it. Because see, here's the thing. Any other gospel is not the gospel. If you've got people who are having problems in their marriage, don't tell them, you know what, they need to know Jesus. You know, if you, need, if you know Jesus, your marriage will be taken care of. They're having financial problems. Well, you need God in your life. You're having problems with your kids. You're having problems with drugs. You're having problems with alcohol. You need God. No, you know what? That's not the gospel. The gospel is to help sinners see what God sees and knows about us, that we are all sinners separated from God. That none of us are righteous, no, not one. Your marriage may be a mess because you're a sinner, but adding Jesus to your life isn't a cure for your marriage. You don't come to the cross because of what it's going to do in areas of your life. You come to the cross because the greatest need that you and I have before God is forgiveness. We need His mercy. We need to be forgiven. We don't add Jesus to an area of our life and stir and call it the gospel. For it's no other gospel. It is not the gospel. We preach Christ and Him crucified. He died according to scriptures. He rose according to the scriptures. He did what God said He would do and He then it came all to fruition according to the plan of God. We don't tell people you need God in your life. You need Jesus Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of your sins. For there is no other way. There is no other name given to men by which men can be saved. There is no other way to heaven but through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gospel. See, he's saying that, you know what? I didn't try to trick anybody. You can't deceive. You can trick people into joining organizations. You can trick people into joining a church. You can trick people into doing what you want them to do. You can manipulate them all you want. But at the end of the day, you can't trick, deceive, or fake anybody else into the kingdom of God. Because God knows His children. He knows them all by name. So let's not be fooled by that. And that's exactly what it said. I'm not trying to fool anybody. See, our greatest need is forgiveness. To be born again. Being believable means being biblical, true to God's word, not manipulative or misleading, but by being committed to the truth. You know what? You and I know we're going to come in contact with people who want to hear stuff from us that is simply just not true. Because when we share the truth with them, it's going to be highly offensive. But let me tell you what Jesus said. The truth will set them free. Only God's truth will set them free. Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Two more points. See, seeing growth promotes and encourages growth. Paul was shouting, man, look at how God continues to work in my life. In verses 7 through 9, he says, not only should we be biblical, you know, but as we look at this, we're not only to be biblical and believable, he says we're also to be broken in how we respond to others around us. To be broken, but we prove to be gentle as opposed to what? As a person who would be arrogant to assert their authority. See, a shepherd never does that. A shepherd is a person who, you know, God puts into the, a, a person's life to be gentle, to instruct them, to protect them, to provide for them, to nurture them, to build them up in their faith. 
You know, we don't, you know, exhort it over those or lord it over those allotted to our charge. There's something wrong with the shepherd's heart that would do such a thing. Paul is saying, you know what, we weren't like that. Although we were apostles, we could have asserted our authority, but we chose not to do that. Instead, notice what he says, that we were gentle. We've proved to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, just like a mom cares for her children, they were, we were gentle with you. The point is simple. To encourage spiritual growth, we need to be gentle and patient, continually instructing others according to the Word of God, 2 Timothy 4.2. To be patient and instruct. Why is what I'm doing wrong? Here's why. Because this is what God says. It's not my opinion. It's not my thoughts. It's God's thoughts. It's His truth. Here's why what you're doing is wrong. And here's the consequences of disobedience. This is why your life is so messed up. But we're gentle. We're gentle and we're patient and we teach God's truth. I'm thinking of this passage and, you know, just stupid things come to my mind. But I'm thinking, can you imagine? He says, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Can you imagine a mom nursing a baby saying, here, this is good for you. Wham! You know, just jamming that kid's face into her chest. It's like, what is that? Here, take this. Oh, good for you. You know, I'm thinking, man, a lot of pastors are like that. A lot of Christians are like that. You know, we get in people's faces and we try to pound the truth of God until they finally, you know, they're, they're, they're beat up and bloodied in submission. That's crazy. And it's not godly. It'll never encourage anybody to grow if we're trying to beat truth over their head. We speak the truth in love. We don't compromise truth. But the way we share it will determine whether it's received or not. I mean, the mature Christian is biblical, feeding on the pure milk of the word and then ultimately eating meat and then passing those truths along to those who God brings into our life. Every nursing mom knows it's so important to be careful what you eat before feeding your child. I mean, we learned when our children were young the hard way. You know, you eat salsa, ladies. And you give your child a dose of the old salsa milk, you're up all night. So then you start going, hey, that's not smart. I think I'll start cutting out those things that are offensive to the baby so the baby doesn't become offensive to us. We're developing a mutually respectful relationship. See, and you always got to be careful. Such gentleness doesn't mean we compromise truth. Jesus was very clear on those areas. The woman at the well is a great example. Uh, you know, the woman caught in the midst of adultery. He didn't, he didn't rubber stamp what her behavior was. He said, hey, look, you know what? You're, you've sinned. Go and sin no more. I can't tell you what you did was right because it's wrong. But at the same time, you know what? I'm not there beating you up and kicking you and punching you like everybody else wanted to do. But at the end of the day, you need to be accountable to God for your actions. And I'm just warning you, what you're doing is wrong before God. But be gentle. We must be approachable if we're to encourage others in their spiritual growth. When I was a kid, I lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I had an aunt who loved baseball. I was about six or seven years old, and she was a crazy lady that, that I see at the stadium all the time. I didn't recognize what kind of a crazy person she was until later in life. But she was one of those crazy, groupy people that follows athletes around. And you know, I was like, she's, she was nuts. But, um, and, and, and she'll never get a copy of this tape. And, um, <laughs> but, but she took me to a pirate game. And, and she said, we got to wait outside, outside these doors here. And I see people, and I always have these flashbacks every time I leave the stadium today. But you know, we wait right here because this is the player's entrance. This is where they park their cars and go in and out. And we can get an autograph here. And I'm, well, I was like scared to death. And uh, so and we're sitting there waiting, you know, and she's pointing people out. And I don't know who anybody is except for I know one person. And my all-time favorite ball player ever, Roberto Clemente. Roberto Clemente comes walking out of those doors and starts walking in the parking lot. And my aunt goes, come on. <laughs> and she grabbed me and she starts pulling me down the street, man. And I'm just like, <laughs> And, and I have this popcorn thing. I had popcorn at the game. And, 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 and uh, so I have this popcorn thing. And she's dragging me. And she's there, Roberto, Roberto, you know. And I she would call them all different. Arriba, great one. Hey, Roberto, you know. It's like, and she's going down there. And, and so he finally stops. And he turns around. And she said, can my nephew have your autograph? And so I can relate to every guy that ever went to somebody for an autograph. And I was like this. <laughs> you know, like that Mean Joe Green commercial, you know. 
And you know the most incredibly gracious thing that I've ever experienced up to that point in my life was he knelt down beside me and he took the and he took the and he and, and he took that popcorn thing and, and he gave me his autograph. And man, I'll tell you what, I have never forgotten that. And I encourage guys who play professional sports to this day by sharing that story of how gracious and what an impact we can make on the lives of others and how much more so should God's people do such. That Jesus Christ would get all the glory. But that Roberto Clemente would take a moment to kneel down on the ground in the asphalt in the parking lot outside of old Forbes Field and give an autograph to a kid being dragged to him by a crazy lady. (laughs) See, now when I read this, but we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, the great Apostle Paul, having thus a fond affection for you, we are well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. And you remember our labor and hardship, working night and day, we didn't become a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. And in reminding him of that truth, he answers an allegation that somehow he was in it for himself. He was out to make a quick buck. And he said, you know what? The evidence shouts to the contrary that those allegations are not true. We need to be believable we need to be broken and humble before the world so that people will listen to the message God has entrusted to us and finally we also need to be blameless you are witnesses and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards your you believers just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his own children Why? So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and into His glory. Isn't that great? He's saying, hey, you saw our conduct. You heard our speeches. You heard our our words of exhortation. You saw our lives and they all matched up. Our lips and our life, our creed and our conduct, everything went in the same direction, man. You knew what we were saying was true because we backed it up by the way that we lived. We're not hypocritical. Encourage spiritual growth in the Thessalonians. We need to be biblical and our conduct needs to be unreproachable, above reproach. It doesn't mean that people won't accuse us, but the reality is that they'll just have no evidence that'll stand up and withhold and be able to withstand it. And in closing, look what he says. We exhorted you, we encouraged you, we implored you. Exhorting, we had a strong positive appeal. You know what? We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. You know what? You can break off that relationship. You can do what's right before God. You can give up drugs. You can give up alcohol. You can start to be fair and right and just in your business practices. You don't have to be in love with money because greater is He who is within you than He who is within the world. You can be set free from sin if you choose to be obedient to God because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Now, if you say you can't, what you're saying to me is you won't. If you say it can't be done, what I'm telling you is you're calling God a liar because His Word clearly says it can be done. What you're telling me is that you don't want to stop doing what's wrong before God. And that's a whole different conversation. But I will encourage you. I will exhort you. I will implore you. I will urge you. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world. Don't be like everybody else. But be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. How does that happen? Because you're biblical and everything. So that you will know what the will of God is. I urge you, I encourage you, I exhort you to get in the Word of God and learn God's truth and see the power that God has at our disposal for those who will walk in obedience with Him. Oh. And I'll close on this because somebody's trying to tell me that our time's running out. 
But I'll close on this. True story. When our son was, a high school, was in high school, he was a senior at high school, and he was playing, well, actually it was, was his junior year, he was playing at a baseball coach. And I love telling this story because I, I use it in my own life to, to get me excited about following the Lord. But he used, to, he used to have, what he liked to do is he threw out attaboys. You know what? And we need to be Christians who throw out more attaboys. You know what I'm saying? We live in a world where it's so negative that, you know, we're always tearing each other down. Man, we need to be throwing out attaboys to build one another up. And what he used to do is he would throw out attaboys. And so if guy does a good job, good play, whatever, he'd say, attaboy. Hey, Obi, attaboy. Hey, attaboy. And, and then if you really did a good job, he'd give you an attababy. No, seriously. It was like, attaboy, attababy. It was way up here. Attaboy, attababy. So it became such an interesting thing that every time Ryan would come home from practice, the only thing I asked him was, hey, how'd practice go? He'd go, well, I got three attaboys. And I'd say, attaboy. And then it'd go like this. But you know what, Dad? I, one of them should have been an baby. It was like, it just became so crazy. It was like, you know, I had two attaboys and attababy. Well, that third one should have been an attababy. I don't know. He's holding on. I don't know what the deal was. But yeah, I got three attaboys. You know, and it was kind of like, it became you know, kind of a running joke. And then as I get in the Word of God, I think, man, you know what? Isn't that what it's all about? How do you encourage growth? How do you encourage enthusiasm? How do you encourage people to keep on hanging in there when, when, when we're getting beat up all around us? To be steadfast and immovable. You know how we do that? We encourage one another. We exhort one another. We implore one another. We recognize what God is doing in someone's life. We're not focused on what He hasn't done yet. We see what He's already done, what He is currently doing. We focus on that instead of always looking at, you know what? Well, there's still more work that needs to be done in you. No kidding. In you and me and everybody else. But we praise God for what He's already done. We praise God that He who began a good work in us, who have come to the cross and accepted Christ as our Savior, will continue to do it until the day of Christ Jesus. His goal is to conform us into the image of His Son. None of us are there yet. We're all work in progress. But we praise God. Attaboy, attababy. Attaboy, attababy. We need to be giving out more attaboys and more attababies. Because you know what? The ultimate attaboy and attababy is this. Standing before my Savior one day, I want to hear him say in his own words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for this section of scripture. Thank you for your word that encourages us to be biblical, to be believable, open, transparent, to be genuine, uh, not to be hypocritical as so much of the world is. We're to abhor hypocrisy and cling to what is good. Help us to be broken in our approach to others. And God, as we look at these things, you know, and we see what you're doing in our life, we just pray that in everything that we'll be blameless in how we conduct ourselves. So as Paul said, that we ourselves are not disqualified from being such hypocrites. God, we just look forward to those words that say, add a boy, add a baby. May we encourage one another, exhort one another, exalt one another, implore one another, urge one another to walk in obedience so that we will live in a manner that is worthy of our calling. And all God's people said, Amen.